Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and I'm here with our engineer, John, who always makes us sound great. Hey, John. Hello, Sheila. September is National Alcohol and Drug Recovery Month, and I've been waiting for so long to partner with someone on a series of conversations about our often very complicated relationship that we have with drugs and alcohol. That's why I'm so excited to share with you a series of dynamic conversations in partnership with Fora Health Treatment and Recovery. I got to know Fora Health years ago at a fundraising event when they were still known as DePaul Treatment Centers. Yeah. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. So let's dive in with our first discussion on addiction and how trauma influences addiction with the former medical director and current board member at Fora Health, Dr. Paul Conti. Dr. Conti is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He completed his training at Stanford and at Harvard, where he served as chief resident. He was named one of Oregon's top psychiatrists in 2008, and he is the author of a new book out called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic how trauma works, and how we can heal from it. Good morning, Dr. Conti. Thanks so much for having me. I read your book, and so I'm a little more introduced to your background, but I want you to share it with our audience about how you came to such a prominent role in the recovery community. I, I had a, a career in business before medicine, and I, and I saw a lot of dysfunction in, in a lot of people coming from substances, but it was, you know, it was often downplayed. And then when I got to medical school and medical training, I really saw the same thing, that there, there wasn't nearly enough attention paid to something that was really pervasive. In some ways, you would see the obviousness when there was a real problem and someone ends up in the hospital or loses a job, but so much more of the impact upon people was more subtle but really spread throughout their lives and the lives of people around them. And it led me over time to have more and more of an interest in the role of substances, the role of abuse of substances and addiction uh, in the lives of individual people and the communities we live in. Dr. Conti, I was really stunned when I read that your brother also died by suicide and knowing the impact that that leaves on people who love the person who has died. I want you to talk a little bit about your personal trauma with relationship to your brother's suicide and what were some of the methods you used to be able to recover? Sure. When my brother died, he was abusing some substances and it was easy in a sense to kind of pin it on that as if, oh, that were the problem and that were the cause. But, you know, I, I became aware you know, in learning more about like what was really going on with the mental health problems that he was having. You know, the, there were stressors in his life. He was depressed. And, and, and in a sense, it was so easy to pin it on substances, which also in a sense kind of made it more like you know, oh, it's his fault, right? You know, in, in a sense, as opposed to seeing, well, 
I mean, we all make, make choices, but we make choices in the context of like what our, our, our life is like and our condition is like. And I, I really saw that there was such, in a sense, a big, complicated story around his death. I think part of what helped me cope with the, the, with the tragedy of, of, of it was understanding just how complicated it was and how like little help he was getting. Like, you know, we as a family didn't know that he needed more help. You know, when he went and saw physicians or people, you know, to helping people, no one really pointed towards that. And, mm-hmm. and I think it gave me an appreciation for, you know, what really can be the immensity of mental health problems that drive people to substances or that are then furthered by substances. And then you really have a catch 22 where mental health problems lead people to substances, substances worse, worse than mental health problems. And it's very, very easy to like never get at the heart of that. And I was very, very struck by that and struck by how in, in medical training, there was not a focus on like, look, what is going on in that person? right? You know, medicine has become so much more symptom focused, right? Oh, we can identify that thing and let's change that thing instead of going to the level of depth of saying, let's really think about that person. Your book is released next month. It's called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. It's going to be released October 5th. And you talk a lot about how addiction is rooted in trauma, as you just mentioned, but how addiction itself is traumatic. I want you to make that distinction, if you would. What do you mean by that? Addiction so often brings to a person a a sense of shame, right? Mm -hmm. There's a sense of stigma that often does come from the outside because people generally want to see states of illness as other, right? Like that's not me, that couldn't be me, that's someone different, that's someone else's problem, oh, and they're responsible for it. And again, we're all responsible for our decisions, but the soup we swim in is really, really complicated, right? And that's such a big factor of like how addiction makes people feel badly about themselves. It starts to make people feel incompetent, sometimes even cursed, right? People will feel, you know, cursed by God. And that's why they have this problem. And it's a really kind of a short step from there to basically to learned helplessness. Oh, I'm a bad person. Nothing's going to get better for me. Nothing ever goes well for me. And then, you know, learned helplessness becomes learned. No one will help because people do often seek help. They go and see a therapist, they go to an emergency room, and so, so often they come away disappointed. They feel more stigmatized. They feel more helpless because there aren't a lot of entities that are gonna look at the whole person and say, look, we're we're gonna look at you not as a diagnosis, not as a problem, not as a stigma, not as a moral failing, but as a person, Mm -hmm. right? We're gonna look at you as who you are, and, and try and understand you, help you understand yourself and help you. And th- there's just far too little of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of how addiction is so traumatizing. And then people also have decreased what's called role performance, right? Now, because of addiction, they can't hold a job. They can't take care of a child. And the decreased role performance brings more stigma, more shame. And you can kind of see how we can be really off to the races of a, you know, of a really damaging and sometimes fatal vicious cycle that didn't have to be that. Can you talk a little bit about the genetic link to addiction and what kind of experiences make us more or less susceptible to addiction? Yeah. You know, there's a model in, in medicine called the stress diathesis model. And, and really what, what diathesis kind of means is vulnerability. So another way of looking at that is there's a genetic vulnerability slash stress model. And we carry different vulnerabilities in us 
some of which we can understand and some of which we don't understand because of the science has it come that far. But for example, there are certain people who have a really disproportionately strong response to alcohol. There's a lot of euphoria, a lot of good feeling that comes from it that's, that's much less like a typical alcohol response and maybe more like an opiate response. And, and people with those genetics, you can imagine, are very susceptible to, to because they're doing something that society kind of norms, but they get an, an extremely positive response, which is very reinforcing of then accelerating the, un, the unhealthy behavior. So the genetics can create risk and risk profiles, and then the stress around us can then determine whether that moves forward or not. So mm-hmm. someone who maybe has that risk, but life is generally going really well, you know, okay, they get a strong response from alcohol, but they don't feel like I need to do that again tomorrow. Yeah. But if they have that response to alcohol and now they have it when things are in a pretty miserable place, well, now there's the vulnerability of like, I feel awful, this makes me feel better, I'm gonna do this again you know, that short-term positive feedback is what can lead us to dramatic long-term harm. It's also really interesting to me that in many families, if the primary parent drank, the next generation refuses to because they don't want to become their parents, but their kids might be unaware of the genetic risk because they don't know the story about grandpa's alcoholism. You know, that there is that skipped generational thing if you're not being very open about your family's inherited risk for these substance abuses. Absolutely. It applies to substances and to mental health. So even in my own family, after my brother's suicide, I learned there was a lot of genetic risk and a lot of problems down through generations, but they weren't talked about. So like, you don't know the risk is there if people aren't talking about the risk. And, you know, maybe someday we'll be able to like take a drop of blood, you know, even from an infant, right? And, and be able to say, oh, here's the risk profile, right? Like right now, you know, there's some ways we can do some testing to learn those things, but really the way that happens is through the telling of history, the telling of stories, of truths. And because there's so much stigma around anything mental health, which includes substances, yeah. there's so much stigma that people don't tell those stories. So then we don't know what the risks are. And I think you cited a, a great example. One generation says, I'm not going to drink because there were problems. No one tells anyone. And then the next generation doesn't know that there's added risk. And then people are having problems. They see it all through the lens of shame. They don't see that it's complicated and, we, and there are genetic risks and there are things we're all extra vulnerable to. And when people understand that, it can, it can be more empowering to make decisions that take control of their life. Because instead of feeling you know, steamrolled by, all, by the, the helplessness and the stigma and the shame, the person can see, look, we carry vulnerabilities when we understand those vulnerabilities, they, that understanding empowers us. How important is a personal sense of agency when you're attempting to combat compulsions? Tr- tremendously important. Tremendously important. Because a lot, lack of sense of agency is, you know, it's passivity in the sense of really bad things happening. And it's remarkable, you know, having done this now for 20 years or so that to see people who can be have a very strong sense of agency in many parts of their life, but they feel helpless regarding substances. And then it becomes like a scary, like a black box of like, I don't understand that. And that oppresses me, right? Mm -hmm. That comes and tackles me. When I think things are going well, I get tackled from behind 
by that and and unlocking you know what are the truths there like what what's really going on how can we understand those truths so that the sense of agency that can be in other parts of the person's life can be in this part of life too and if the sense of agency isn't in other parts of life often this is the place to start and and like people really do recover people really do get better i mean that's why look depaul is building oh it's a it's it's a 53,000 square foot facility that's going to serve 5100 people and families a year because really taking care of people works i mean it doesn't work 100% of the time but a lot of times that's because people disengage or like factors that we can modify when we can really help people change their lives and depaul has so many stories of that and and part of why the new facility it's a beautiful place and because it's it's respectful of people to have a place to go that creates an environment that says yes you're worth taking care of you can get better we believe that because of the way that we're treating you and the environment in which we're treating you. Yeah, it's beautiful. And DePaul, by the time we're airing this, is going to become Fora Health so that when you yes. do your Google search for your own person you love or even perhaps for yourself for your recovery journey, you can look up Fora Health, F-O-R-A Health. So I'm very curious about what happens that makes one person susceptible to alcohol while the other person might be more susceptible to methamphetamine while still another brain might crave opioids. What is the difference there? So there, there are differences in say, genetic risk. And again, we understand that best with alcohol. We think about it, there, there are people who have genetics where if they drink alcohol, they, they feel very bad immediately. They're flushing and feel sick. So you think about that on one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum, genetics that make alcohol say more like an opiate profile. So we, we really see that dramatically with alcohol. The other end of the spectrum there is opiates, where it may be that no matter what a person's genetics are, they're so powerful that that like anyone can become rapidly addicted. You know, through eight years of medical school and psychiatric training in total, no one ever said to me the most powerful medicines to impact the brain, the most powerful psychiatric medicines are opiates. Mm-hmm. They have the power to make a person feel so much better so quickly. And that is so seductive that a person can rapidly be at a place where they're desperately doing anything they can to get those drugs in order to not be miserable. Because that's how quickly it goes from euphoria and feeling good to, I need that just so I don't feel deathly sick. I want to ask you this question, Dr. Conti. I think it's really important to give an example. And um, I I shattered my wrist when I was mountain bike riding and all the, you know, bone splinters went up into my fingers. It was the the most extraordinarily painful thing I've ever been through in my life. Morphine didn't work, whatever it is they were giving me to try to get me ready for surgery didn't work. But a doctor came in and gave me Dilaudid. And for the first time in my life, I really understood why people become addicted because the sense of overall well-being and understanding and peace was so overwhelming in my body. It just felt like the most beautiful form of love. But intellectually, I knew the moment that that hit my bloodstream, oh, you can't ever have this again. What mechanism do I have that says, don't ever ask for Dilaudid again, versus someone else who's like, oh, I want more of that and more of that and more of that. What is the difference in our brains? There, what you just described is more likely, take nurture versus nature. It's more likely who you are than what are your brain genetics. 
because that sense of euphoria, because Dilaudid is such a powerful medicine and it is like a match, say for you, it makes you feel that way. Right. Right. But you know, that would likely come that feeling for you no matter what. So the way that you respond to it is because you yourself, your own psychology, you have a strong sense of self and a strong sense of agency. Yes. So how that strikes you is, okay, you feel the, the, the positive feeling of it, but at the same time, something in your brain goes danger, right? And that's the sense of agency and the sense of self-preservation where you, you realize like I, this, this brings a tremendous amount of danger because it is so reinforcing. I must be careful. And you can imagine in a different place, how that could go differently, mm-hmm. right? Imagine a, a person, I think this can happen to any of us if our, our, the course of our lives went differently, where, you know, you feel very badly about yourself, don't have a strong sense of agency, feel miserable, feel slighted by life, feel mm-hmm. life's never going to give you anything good. And, you know, if, if a person feels like that, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to accept this feels good, and I'm going to run with this feeling good. Even though there's a part of your brain that says this is too good to be true, mm. this is going to make problems for me. You know, it's easy for all of us, for human beings to kind of turn our back on that and just look at what's pleasurable in the moment. So there's a sense of agency and a sense of self that to say, hey, I'm not going to ignore that part of my brain that is screaming danger, wow. even as another part of my brain is feeling euphoric. And that's empowerment. What is the mechanism that immediately makes the brain need more of the same substance on the third and fourth and fifth time using. Well, I'm very interested in that, the way that we acclimate so quickly to especially opioids. I hear stories about people who went from, you know, five milligrams up to 500 milligrams in two weeks because it just wasn't serving the same purpose. So what is happening there? What's the biological and chemical um, mix that our bodies are undergoing? It varies so much by substance and, and opiates are the most dramatic example. So you think about 80,000, at least people dying just, you know, in looking over a course of a year. I mean, how dramatic the opiates are. And part of that is because the side effect of opiates are, is, to, is to suppress breathing. It decreases the, the drive inside of us to be conscious, to be alive. Because if the breathing gets depressed too much, we stop breathing. So the system starts reacting against that because the the brain also perceives danger in a lot of ways. And part of the way it perceives danger is, hey, there's a drive here that's telling me to stop breathing. And then the brain is, is fighting against that. And then you have a very rapid tolerance because the medicine is so, so dangerous. That varies with substances, but opiates are by far the most dramatic example of incredible acute danger. And then how the brain responds in a self-preservation manner, even while the reinforcement mechanisms are there too. Wow. You just mentioned it, 81,000 Americans dying of overdose in May of 2020 is the highest ever recorded. And by the way, that averages out to 222 people a day. So I'm very curious what your thoughts are about COVID and the kind of force multiplier this pandemic is going to have on those numbers. I think probably the 81,000 is almost certainly low because there are many people who die of opiate overdose, but they're from prescribed medicines that are taking more than they should be, or, or someone's adding something to it. So even that, I mean, that's an astounding number, right? And that number is probably still 
less than, than the real number. And the effects of social isolation, the effects of all the things that come with the fear and the isolation of the pandemic are, are only going to grow that number. I mean, is it, it is, there's all the experience of the past in situations like this tell us that that number is going to grow because people's levels of fear have grown. Depression has grown. The, the ability of isolation to allow for more substance use without others noticing is a factor. Domestic violence behind closed doors is a factor. There's so many things, mood, anxiety, people's behaviors that have been impacted in a negative way by the pandemic that you have to look at that and say, how, how is that? How are we not going to pay the price for that? And we have not had very good helping systems even before this. You know, mental health issues and substances in particular, you know, th these are not places where in general, as a society, we're clamoring to allocate resources even though now these are problems for all of us. I mean, the thought that, oh, substance problems are for other people or they're for people who aren't like me, that's so impossible to embrace now with even a little bit of looking around us. The problems are everywhere, but we have not done a good job of allocating resources and acknowledging we need to pay attention to this the same way we've paid attention to cardiovascular disease and to breast cancer and the things that are, that are common public health menaces. We, we have really not done the same for substances. And I, I think it's hard for me to envision how we don't pay the price for that as a society going forward. Yeah. 20 million Americans with a substance use disorder and 12 million who are battling with what's called a dual diagnosis or alcohol and drug addiction along with a mental illness. But it's always been interesting for me to determine the chicken or the egg. <laughs> How do you determine when someone has a mental health disorder versus an addiction or the addiction caused the mental health disorder? How do you untangle that? You know, there's something in medicine called the silo effect where you know, we, we wanna parse things out so much that we end up parsing things out in ways that take, a, that take away meaning. So much thought has been put to, oh, is that mental health or is it substance? Because mental health often gets carved out from the rest of medical care, and then substance care gets carved out from yes. mental health. And we spend a lot of time thinking about things that maybe we should, in a sense, think less about by approaching everyone as the whole person that they are. Mm -hmm. And to say, look, if, if, a, if you have a substance problem and you have depression, one, let's do enough diligence so that we learn that there's depression there too. And then let's treat both those things instead of trying to figure out, well, who, wait, okay, there's depression. Now we got to send that to somebody to treat here. Oh, there's substance that sends that to somebody to treat there. I mean, that that, you can see how like, that is not holistic. And then you start looking for the chicken or the egg, which often is not possible to find. I mean, sometimes it is. And you learn, oh, every time that person has a depressive episode, then they get into trouble with alcohol again. Okay, let's really focus on ongoing mental health care for depression. But you only learn those things by focusing on the whole person. And that is what historically the legacy of DePaul, which is now becoming Fora, is it really tries to integrate of, if you look at the whole person, sometimes you do need to answer the chicken or the egg question, but yeah. sometimes you're like, look, let's take care of this whole person. Because look, depression is also associated with cardiovascular disease. Do you have somebody whose cardiovascular disease is getting worse, which is furthering their depression, which is furthering their substance use? If you look at all of that together, 
you're taking care of a real person instead of trying to parse out problems to put in different silos. Yeah, it's a perfect answer. So I'm very curious um, about your thoughts on other addictions, sex, shopping, food addictions. Now we have um, online addictions. Is there evidence to suggest that these disorders are also chemical or neurotransmitter influenced? Yeah, th th so there's a way in which we can reinforce things in our brains and then give them greater and greater power. And you see this in about things that actually don't have an adaptive advantage. So if someone say gets in the habit and the brain biology pushes towards say, every time something negative happens, a person taps seven times or counts, right? Things that, get, that end up being OCD, that, that becomes very powerful. And even though the person can say, I know that tapping seven times doesn't help anything, they still have a lot of trouble not doing that. So you can see how that can grow in things that do provide something adaptive in the short term. So we can get kind of habituated to, to anything that then be, becomes a habit and a reinforcing habit. And looking at the, the best that we can understand, which of course imperfect, but an evolving look at the neuroscience and the neuroimaging really tells us this, that these mechanisms of addiction are, exist in the human brain, probably in all of our brains, and they can get hijacked by a lot of things. And it, maybe it's more obvious if they're hijacked by cocaine or amphetamines or alcohol or opiates, but they can get hijacked by other things too. And it is really the same brain machinery and then we need to look at that in ways that, again, are nuanced. We, we, we know we often do enjoy buying things. Human beings enjoy sex. Human being enjoy, beings enjoy food. So we have to look at what is the difference between something that's entirely harmful, that starts hijacking all those reinforcement systems, and something that can be healthy, adaptive, pleasurable in moderation, that then becomes easier to over-rely on it, and then it hijacks those addiction pathways. I'm very curious because you work with clients every single day and you have this really beautiful business approach to how you can change the world of psychiatry. But what is your most hopeful aspect of what you're doing right now? Far and away, the most hopeful aspect is the, the sort of generation of a holistic view of people, which of course, we're, we're not, like, I, I want to believe in my heart that I practice that way and that the people that I work with, we're all of like mind. And, and, and of course, so we learned that somewhere, right? We, we learned that from other people who modeled that for us. We learned that because we see its effectiveness. And I, I think that's really where the, the answers lie. We have so many tools. We have tools that come from neuroscience. We have tools that come from the psychotherapeutic traditions. We have tools that come from you know, the, the various ways of helping people with abstinence or release from substances over time. We have so many tools. And the idea that we can sort of have all those arrows in the quiver and say, look, that's our job is to have all those arrows in the quiver. Mm -hmm. And then to say, okay, I, this you're in front of me. How can I help understand you, help you understand yourself so we know what arrows do we take out of the quiver and use as opposed to a one-size cookie cutter, like, okay, you walked in the door um, and someone referred you for alcohol. So, okay, you're an alcoholic. That's the problem. Let's come at that. And then no one looks at anything else. And, and I think like so much of the silo effect just doesn't work. I mean, mm. and so much of it, it's worse than it's, it's worse than ineffective. It's counterproductive because then when things don't go well, people feel more disheartened. And I think there's so many shortcuts we've taken as a society with our use of resources and our, and our health that I think more of it's going to come to the fore that says, hey, if we're not looking at people holistically, 
what are we really doing? We're helping a very small subset of people and we're harming maybe as many people as we're helping. And that involves taking a look at how are we prioritizing our use of resources in society? And I think we're going to see that there's a lot of squandered resources that could be going towards really helping people. And it's not that complicated. I mean, it takes time and money and effort. There's also a common sense aspect of why would we not be looking holistically at people? It just seems like the obvious answer that, well, that's the way to understand them. And understanding them has to be the route to helping. I didn't prepare you for this question, but I hope you don't mind if I asked it. If you if you could go back in time and you were with your brother at the time he was suffering and you knew the depth of what he was involved in, how would you have planned his treatment path? I would have wanted to understand, okay, where is a, a person or a place that will approach this with respect for the magnitude of all of it? You know, my brother had had a very, very serious medical problem when he had been a little bit younger, his mid-teens. And, and like that was a factor. The trauma of all of that was a factor. You know, the you know, loss of a relationship was a factor. You know, yeah. fear of the future and like, how am I going to take care of myself, make my way in the world? I would, have felt, I would have felt what I felt when I learned and understood more, which is yeah. really the immensity of it. And then I would have wanted him to get to people who you know, had the skills and the, the capability of saying, okay, I don't, I'm not afraid of that, right? Like, let's try and understand it. Let's try and help him not feel like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be okay, right? Because, you know, I think what often when people commit suicide, why is that? And, you know, very often one of the, the reasons at the forefront is they feel a sense of hopelessness, right? They feel overwhelmed. No one can ever understand me. No one's going to help me. I'm never going to make it. And, you can see how that lead that leads to a place of despair and it, it does not have to so that's i would want to get him to people who could sit with that who could understand it who weren't going to try and rush him in and out in 15 minutes because you know there's like trying to check a box i'm not saying that everyone is doing that but the health system's predisposed to that right as, as opposed to look we got it we got it you know if we really want to help some people people we have to stop and take the time to do that and that requires resources and Again, it brings me back to it's got to be a priority as opposed to we can see those numbers of 80,000 people dying, all these numbers we're talking about. And like, you know, we can turn our back on that and, you know, we can spend money on things as a society that really make no sense. Or we can say, hey, we've got to do something about this because this really is all of us. It's all of us. It's, it's people, it's ourselves, it's people we love, it's people we don't know, but should ideally still care about. And like, it's, it's not a problem of them or they, it's a problem of us. Oh, what a beautiful place to end it. Uh, Dr. Conti's book is called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. It's going to be released October 5th. Dr. Conti, thank you so much for your time today. It was really an extraordinary interview. I appreciate your time so much. You're, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me and for putting so much thought into the topics and the questions. Thank you. Bye.